Hey, go ahead and find a seat. It's great to be with you all. Hey, my name is Justin. I serve as one of the pastors here at City Light Bennington. So good to be with all of you. If you're new here, welcome. So glad to see you. Hope you can get connected outside after the gathering with some people. Uh, we're so glad you're here. We've been going as a church through the book of Genesis, and I'm so excited to jump back in. Today is actually one of my favorite chapters, chapter 32, and stories maybe arguably of all of the Bible. It, it is one of my favorite. It is an epic wrestling match. If we have any wrestlers in the room, it is an epic wrestling match between a man who is literally going to wrestle God himself, God in the flesh, God and man duking it out. And what we find here in the story, and I'm going to show us through this passage, is that there's a wrestle that is far beyond and deeper than just a physical wrestling match. The wrestle that each one of us can find ourselves in maybe currently or are about to find ourselves here shortly. It is a wrestle here that is not new. It is nothing that the human race has not experienced through every generation. It is the wrestle between relying on yourself and relying on God. And it matters for us this morning because the two of these will have very different outcomes. The way we respond in this wrestle will determine if we receive God's opposition or God's blessing. And so it matters for us to zone in today to see how do we wrestle with God. And I want to show us God's heart through this as well. Not just the practicals, but God's heart in all of this. God wants us to wrestle with him. He wants to rule us, but it's not because he's some egomaniac on a power trip. See, God's heart is when he invites us to wrestle. Here's the crazy part. God actually wants us to win. God wants us to be blessed and I want to show us this morning, in the title and of the sermon, as well as the question I think each one of us should be asking through this passage, is how do you wrestle with God and win? That's the question I want to answer this morning. So before we jump in, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a God who invites us to wrestle. Would you show us that much more through the way that you wrestled with Jacob? Is the same way you want to wrestle with us. Show us what it looks like. Show us what it means to have you rule us and to receive the blessing that you so badly want for us. Show us your heart. Show us your character. Help us to encounter you through your word. Holy Spirit, help us. Get me out of the way. I'm desperate for you, and I'm just a vessel. So please, let your grace flow through me towards your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the story this morning as we dive in, a little context before we actually read the passage. Uh, Jacob is on his way to meet his brother Esau. Things between them have not been good. Jacob has tricked him out of his birthright as well as his father's blessing. And now he's about to see him for the first time in years since this went down. And Jacob, last thing he knew, Esau wanted to kill him. And so as he's sending out these gifts in order to kind of in typical Jacob fashion try to woo his way through life and deceive and trick and buy over people, he's sending all these gifts in a parade-like fashion towards Esau. But he's gotten word already from his messengers that Esau is on his way to meet him. And he's got an army of 400 men strong. And so Jacob is terrified. He thinks that Esau is still out to kill him. So he's even separated his family, which we know the 11 sons from a couple chapters ago. He split up his family into two different groups in hopes that if at least Esau attacks, one of the groups of his family can escape. He is putting everything online in this meetup. And it is the night before now, we find ourselves in this chapter, the night before he is about to face Esau face to face, and he finds himself alone in the camp. 
but we will find that he does not find himself alone for very long. If you have a Bible, we'll go ahead and open Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through the end. It says, during the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name, the man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. This is a wild story. God has come down in the form of a man to wrestle Jacob all throughout the night. We call this a theophany. It's this incredible, miraculous manifestation of God's presence down on earth. And Jacob has experienced this theophany face to face in this wrestling match all throughout the night. And the first observation I see about this is Jacob is literally wrestling God. But not only that, but I think it's even more interesting. Notice in verse 25, it says that when the man, referring to God, saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip. And so what's happening here is as Jacob and God begin to wrestle, Jacob thinks he's a match for this guy. Jacob thinks he's a match for God himself. And what happens is God puts his hip out of socket, and we'll get to that. But I think it already shows us the problem here. Jacob, being in his typical fashion again, a trickster, a deceiver, he is one of the most self-reliant, self-confident men we've ever seen up to this point. And we see the first problem with this self-reliance. The first thing that we see, and the primary issue I would argue that is wrong with self-reliance is that it puts us equal to God. It says that we can wrestle God and say, I'm a match for him. I can take him. I'm on equal footing with God. And this is the first and primary issue. And to flesh this out a bit, I, I want to go into a personal example myself. I can confess that I am the king of planners. Any planners in here? People, you love your calendars, your schedules, you love spreadsheets and budgets, that's me to a T. And I think that way. I don't like when those things are tampered with, messed with, or messed up, right? That's, that's me. I even think so much as now that I'm about to have a child, I think of questions like, well, will I be able to provide for my family? And not just financially, but emotionally, spiritually. Will I be the man that God's called me to be? Will I fail or will I succeed? And I begin to plan that much harder in order to make sure that happens. I even begin to think about my kids' life and the future of their lives. And I begin to plan even their lives. And no longer am I only planning my life, I'm planning the lives of those around me. That's how desperate I am to make sure that I get what I want. But underneath this, what's underneath that? Because all of us, I think, if we're honest, have had those thoughts. Or at least we're tempted to think that way. What's underneath that is I think what we're doing here 
is that we're striving to get what we want because we're afraid we won't get what we need. Let me say that again. I I think we're striving to get what we want because we're afraid we won't get what we need. In our wrestles with God throughout life and the things that come our way, many times we treat them like the school project back in the day. If you remember that, you'd get a partner school assignment, and sometimes you get partnered with the guy, you're like, oh, him. Well, it looks like I'm going to be doing this all myself, right? Like those kind of projects. But I think we do the same thing with God. I think many times we see a problem, an issue, a, a project in our life that we think, oh, I got partnered up with God. Well, God, it's okay. I'll, I'll do most of the work for this one. It's all right. God, actually, you know what? Let me help you, God. Let me do the work that I think needs to actually be done. Let me take things into my own hands. God, let me help you. Can anyone else relate to this? All right, one honest person. Fantastic, fantastic. (laughs) But isn't it true that the more we operate apart from God, the more we operate in our own strength and apart from God's grace, it only snowballs that much more. It allows us to only be that much more susceptible to stress, to anxiety, even anger, to lash out when things don't go our way. We get frustrated and we white-knuckle it that much more. In a spiritual sense, in a spiritual example, I confess that when I give in to sin, I am the first to be what's called legalistic. I immediately think for one wrong, I better do three rights. I better earn my way back into good standing with God. If, if I fall into a sin, then I, oh, that was just dumb, right? But then I go and think, well, at least if I read my Bible, maybe listen to a couple sermons on it, and uh, you know what, maybe I'll, I'll confess it to, to someone I know, right? Just, just to get it off my chest, to make it feel like at least I told someone, right? But again, what are we doing with that? We, we, we take things into our own hands. What we're doing is we're actually trying to do something by creating this cheap counterfeit of God's grace. I'm the first to confess that. And like any counterfeit, it's worthless. But we do this all the time. Maybe not even just in spiritual senses, but everyday practical senses. Whatever in our lives, we we have a tendency to rely on ourselves. Why am I sharing all this? To relate it back to our story. Because like Jacob, we want something right? That's not wrong to want something, but it's wrong to put ourselves on equal footing with God. There's this pride, this attitude of thinking so highly of ourselves that, again, God, God, let me help you. Let, let me do this work. I know you can kind of mysteriously do your work, but, but let me do the, the meat of this. And what it does is, again, it, it, it comes at a sacrifice. Everything has a cost, and what it usually costs us is we tend to overthink about things. We tend to overwork ourselves. We begin to sacrifice time with family and friends, even our present happiness and our present well-being. Some of us maybe are even on the other side of this. Maybe you're not stressing and exhausted by planning your life, but maybe you you haven't wrestled at all. Maybe you're in the, the ditch where everything's going so smoothly and so predictably and so well that it just seems like all your life rhythms are set. And what God's calling you is actually to realize that even that can create a self-dependence, a self-reliance that no longer thinks it needs God at all. 
And what happens is whether you're in the camp that you're exhausting yourself planning or you're the person who says, I don't exhaust myself whatsoever, the same is true that the issue between both of them is that there is a self-reliance, no reliance on God whatsoever. And the first thing to go is that intimacy, the closeness to God that says, God, I need you. So what can we do? If this is the tendency of the human heart to find ourselves in one of these two ditches, how do we fight this? How do we get back to the middle ground? Well, just like Jacob, we're going to have to wrestle. If we look back at Jacob's story, up to this point, Jacob has been a trickster. He's been a deceiver. He has used anything and everything in his power to try to get what he wants, whatever it costs, no matter who he has to step on. He's self-reliant. He's even gone so far as to hopefully win his brother's favor back by just sending a parade of gifts. And God meets him this time to say, that, that won't work this time. God touches his hip out of socket and immediately cripples Jacob in this wrestle. Jacob quickly finds out, this man, this God is no equal of mine. This God is far and above. This God is way bigger way more powerful, that one touch can cripple me and leave me with an injury for the rest of my life. Just a touch. So Jacob, crippled on the ground, what a picture, not only physically, but I think spiritually what's happening here. Jacob has to take a posture for the first time in his life of what? For the first time in Jacob's life, he's had to humble himself. Jacob had one shot to make all these things right, and now at the cost of this, he and his family may be killed. And so as he holds on for dear life, looking to God, he says, God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What a posture of humility for the first time. Jacob, the deceiver, which literally that's what his name means. So when God asks him the next question, right after that, saying, what is your name? Not because God doesn't know, obviously, it's because God is saying, take the humility to confess the man you've been. You've been a deceiver all of your life. You've been a self-reliant, self-confident, prideful man. Confess that to me. Renounce that for the first time. Humble yourself. Forsake that old way of life. So as Jacob confesses, I'm a deceiver by saying his own name and by humbling himself and for the first time throwing self-reliance out the window. It is then and only then where God blesses him. God gives him a new name, a new identity. He names him Israel, which we know will be a large theme and throughout this story of redemption biblically. This will be a, a chosen people, a nation that God chooses to save the entire world through this people of Israel. And this name Israel literally means God rules. A beautiful picture, a beautiful identity, a symbol of what's happened here. He has gone from the deceiver to God rules. From I rule to God rules. The idea of submitting to a better ruler of his life. And that's what God names him. He gives him this new name, this new identity. And he even blesses him after that. We'll see in this beautiful story of reconciliation that he and Esau in the next few chapters will reconcile. And it won't be because of Jacob's schemes of gifts. It will be because God blessed him. Because God softened his brother's heart. The practical application, what do we do practically? 
This isn't a story that seems maybe heady and big and theological, but down to earth, what do we do to live this out? Well, as Christians, it means that we, like Jacob, now Israel, live out of a new identity. It's not just because we do what God says, just because. It's because God has given us a new identity. We are the new spiritual Israels. Each one of you who have bowed your knee to Jesus, you have a new ruler, a new master, whose ways are much better and wiser than any of us could ever imagine. And so as the new identity takes us on and we embrace that to follow Jesus because we want to rather than because we have to. We give up our self-reliance and we have learned and continue to learn every day how to rely more and more on God's grace. Undeserved favor. All of life is undeserved favor. It's not what we can do, what we can earn, but rather what God would give. We see his goodness. We see his sovereign rule and we are free to stop trying to outthink him to outsmart him, to outdo him, to outplan him, to outwork him. He is not the the failure screw-up partner that you had in the school project. He is God. He is no equal. He knows way more than we could ever know. And so what does that mean practically? It means that we can welcome change in our life. We can welcome disruptions. We can welcome distractions. We can welcome trials and tests. We can welcome the unknown, and we can face that unknown with confidence. It means that we can trust God as a better ruler of our lives, a better Lord. That's what it means. When he is Lord, he is the ruler, he is the master, and he is a kind and good master. And when we welcome change, we can welcome it joyfully, knowing it's probably because he wants to change us. He wants to use that. He wants to transform us. He wants to mature us. He wants to bring us closer to himself, just like Jacob. We can humble ourselves and admit that if God is our opponent, we'll never win. But we can rejoice and find all comfort knowing that God, if, our, if God is our Lord, we'll never lose. You hear that? If, if God is your opponent, you'll never win. But if God is your Lord, you'll never lose. Because when it comes to wrestling with God, if the theme of this story shows us that when it comes to wrestling with God, you win by losing. You get victory when you surrender. And that's what God is calling to us, to live life open-handedly. Say, God, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, whatever you want me to be, I'm yours. Because I know that if you're my opponent, I'll never win. But if you're my Lord, I'll never lose. That's the Christian life. It's by faith in God's grace. James 4, 6, I think, sums up this entire story in one little sentence. It says, and he, God, gives grace generously. And the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So again, when I say that when we wrestle with God, if you want God as your opponent, rely on yourself. If you want God as your Lord, make God your Lord. Make God the one who you trust. If you get all the grace from him and humble yourself. James 4, 13 through 16 goes on. It says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, 
we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. You see, what God's not saying is that he's saying that the things we do plan are not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily wrong to plan for the future and be responsible. The Proverbs talk about that as wisdom. But what's evil in God's eyes is that when we make those plans, we make them without him. That we go ahead of him. That we make our plans in such a way that we're almost boasting. As if we're saying, God, I'm going to do that whether or not you like it or not. This is my plan. Don't mess it up. And that's what God says is evil. It's not wrong to make plans. It's wrong to make plans without God. And God's main wrestle then in all of this is not necessarily against us. It's against our self-reliance. It's against our pride. Against this self-confidence that says, I can do this. I got this. Rather than a humility that God would bless that says, God, I trust you. And apart from you, I can do nothing. Nothing. You see, and Jacob thought in all of this that his greatest enemy was Esau, his brother. And as he's wrestling God, he might have been tempted to think his greatest enemy was God. But in all this, God was showing him that it wasn't Esau or God, it was himself. You see, when unexpected tests and trials and unwanted change comes in our life and ruins our plans and disrupts our rhythms, our greatest enemy will not be other people. It will not be our spouse. It will not be our kids. It will not be Satan. It will not be God. Our greatest enemy in those moments will be our self-reliant thoughts and plans that need to be conquered by God. They need to be wrestled and they need to be thrown out of socket. Is when this happened for Jacob. You see, when this happened for Jacob, Jacob got something so much more than what he wanted. That's what God wants. He, he wants something so much more than what you want. He wants you to get what you need, which has been the fear all along. Has it not been? You're afraid you won't get what you need, and that's exactly what God wants to give you. The same is true for us. The, the greatest need for any of us in this room is not more money, it's not more security, it's not more time, it's not more planning, it's not even more energy. Our greatest need is God's blessing. It's God's favor. It's God looking down from heaven and approving of our heart posture of humility. To say, God, I can do nothing apart from you. Submitting, once again, under his rule where you've maybe gone astray and you've, you've found yourself wandering and being disobedient and coming out of his authority. And God's saying, it's time to come back under my authority. It's time to come back under, living under my word. It's time to come living with my spirit and partnering with me like we once did. The personal testimony of how I can testify that God's rule is so much better than my own. I gave my life to Jesus eight years ago in a college dorm room through a YouTube video. And I can tell you about that some of the time. But in that moment... I, if looking back, I, I don't know if that moment hadn't have happened. I don't know where I'd be today. I don't know where I'd be. But I know that the moment I bowed my knee to Jesus, when I was forgiven of my sins and brought back into a personal relationship with him, and I submitted myself to his rule and said, Jesus, you're not only my Savior, you're my Lord. You can rule, you can do whatever you want with me. Here's what I got. 
And here's what every single one of you who have bowed your knee to Jesus, here's what you get with Jesus as your ruler. You get forgiveness. The moment you bow your knee to Jesus, God erases all of the distance, all of the shame, all of the guilt that you've carried and you've created because of your sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Amen. But not only forgiveness, we get adoption. It means we become, the moment we bow our knee to Jesus' rule in our lives, we become sons and daughters who are loved and kept and treasured in the eyes of an almighty, loving Father. God becomes your Father in the moment you submit to his rule. Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, hallelujah. We also get friendship. Not only sonship, but friendship. The moment you bow your knee to Jesus' rule, you get God as close as a best friend. Psalm 25, 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. We also get peace. That in the moments where our hearts need it most, when they're anxious and fraught, we get a peace that surpasses understanding. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace. Those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. We get rest. He gives rest to those who are weary, to those who are tired and need it most. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is a promise. When you come under Jesus' rule, you get rest. You get victory. The moment you trust Jesus to be the Lord of your life, he fights for you and he does not lose a single battle. John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You receive good when Jesus becomes your Lord. He forces the cosmos to guarantee good for you every moment, in every situation. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. The moment Jesus becomes our Lord, he gives us every blessing the Father gave him. Ephesians 1, 3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Need I go on, but we receive everything else. Everything God promises will be fulfilled. He knows exactly what we need. Romans 8, 32, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything Fill in the gaps. Everything else you need. There is no gaps. There are no spaces that God has not already filled for you. Everything else you need is as good as yours because Christ is your Lord. Do you trust that? Will you receive that by faith? Or do you need to wrestle with that a little bit until you submit in humility to say, God, I trust you more than I trust myself. And in all this, all these blessings... We need to understand that God is the greatest of them all. God is the greatest blessing. He himself. Matthew 25, 21. This is a picture of what will happen for the saints 
who are faithful, who Jesus was their Savior and their Lord, and they will meet him face to face in heaven. This is what he will say. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, because one day all the things we worried about, all the things we were self-reliant on, and we didn't trust God with, all those things will not matter. They will fall and be thrown on the ash heap of eternity into dust. They won't matter. And so, yes, God does show us through this passage that there is a measure of faithfulness that God rewards. But the primary reward for every believer will be the same. It will be the joy of the master himself. That's what God wants. You see, in all of this, through this passage, God wants to show us that he wants us to enjoy his rule. That he wants to rule us. Don't get me wrong. He is Lord of all. But he wants it so badly that he's willing to come in the form of a man to wrestle with Jacob's sin so that Jacob could be set free, so that Jacob could be given a new identity and a new intimacy with God. Pause. Does that sound familiar? Because some thousands of years later, a man named Jesus of Nazareth would come down to the earth, God in the form of a man, and he would wrestle with our sin. He would wrestle with Satan and death, and he would win. He would conquer, and it would come at the cost of his life. Jesus would take it to the extreme to show us that he wants us to be ruled because he is the greatest ruler. Not because he's an egomaniac who's a micromanager, but because he's God and he knows what is best and he's willing to give us his best if we would submit. The beauty of Jesus is while Jacob felt a touch of God's wrath, Jesus would feel all of God's wrath. That while we were self-relying tricksters and sinners just like Jacob, not giving a thought to God, relying only on ourselves, Jesus would take the blow that all of us sinners would deserve. Tim Keller puts it this way, Jacob held on at the risk of his life to get the blessing for him. But Jesus held on at the, cro- at the cost of his life to get the blessing for us. Come on. And that blessing is not only for forgiveness of sins, but it is the freedom from self-reliance. It is the, the, the blessing of having a better ruler of our lives than ourselves. And just like Jacob, that wrestling and that relying brings something that God has wanted to bring us to all along. In all this, it's not just so that God can rule us and wrestle us. It's so that God, in the ruling and in the wrestling, can bring us close. Just like Jacob. Jacob was never probably going to get that close to God unless God had to wrestle him. Jacob was probably never going to get that close until God had to rule him and conquer his self-reliance. It's what God wants for each and every one of us. It's a closeness. It's an intimacy with God that is like Jacob face to face. Like Moses, as a man speaks with his friend. And so how do we do this? I want to give us practical things that if you want to experience the closeness of God, if you want to submit your will to God better and to learn how to do that, as we all do, me included, five 
daily practices that I believe if you do, I really believe God will bless you. And God will actually change you. Start with the first one. Number one is seek. Seeking God with all your heart. God says, when you do that with all your heart and you seek him, God promises you will find me. And so the idea of seeking, what does that look like practically? It means finding the quiet place in your heart and in your mind where you actually have no distractions. You carve out the time and the space for God to meet with him. Just as if you were to meet with a friend at a coffee shop or your spouse at the dinner table, you meet with God. You don't interrupt it. You don't hurry it. You seek him with all your heart. Say, God, I'm zoned in on you. The one goal of this meetup is to seek you and to find you. Now, these can look like quiet times. This can make making time and space for the Holy Spirit to move in your life. It doesn't always have to just be in the morning before work. It can be throughout your day. Maybe you find yourself in a, a free moment of thought. Maybe it's during your lunch break. Maybe it's during a, right before a meeting or a big presentation, and you find yourself with just a few moments to spare. Use those moments to make room to seek God with all your heart. Call upon him. And he says, you will find me. You can find me in the workplace. You can find me at the Starbucks. You can find me at the gym. You can find me wherever you seek me. And the closest people I know to God are the ones who make the most space for God in their lives. They give God the most time in their lives. Number two is read. Once you seek him, you read. You take his word and you see it for the gold and the treasure that it is. You, you take each tiny verse like a morsel of the most delicious steak in the world, and you chew on it. And you begin to extract all the flavor out of it. And you think about, God, how do I see your character in this? Where do I see your heart in this? Where do I see your goodness, your faithfulness, your mercy in this? What promises do I extract from this? And you allow God to introduce you to himself through his word. You allow God to take his word and to help you get to know him that much more. As he brings you and he brings you close. The closest people I know to God are the ones who God has stored up his word in their hearts. Your heart is a storehouse for God's word. What happens when the famine hits? Most times our storehouses are empty. And we wonder why things are going wrong. We wonder why we're starving. God wants us to store up his word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. He wants his word to be sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb, more precious than gold. Make a rhythm of that daily. Don't make a diet where you're just eating twice a week on a Sunday and a Wednesday night. If that's your diet, no wonder you're hungry. No wonder you're in pain in your life. There's grace for that, but I'm telling you, there's a reason for it as well. A steady diet. No one would ever expect to perform well in life by eating twice a week. And the same is true. How much more spiritually? Number three is pray. When we talk to God. We talk to him throughout. Again, like I said, it doesn't have to be just in the mornings. It doesn't have to be the super pious thing where we get down on our hands and knees and, and fold our hands and close our eyes. We can do that. But the heart of prayer, again, is to seek him. The greatest thing we get from prayer is him, to talk with him to commune with him, to fellowship with him, to enjoy him. And what this can look like every day, throughout your day, is as you're talking to God, 
whether that's at home, whether that's with your kids, with your wife or your husband or your job, with your coworker or your boss. You're talking to them. And many times you're asking. That, that's what it looks like for me. I'm usually just walking into a space and saying, God, is there anything you want me to do? Is, is there anything, anyone you want me to talk to? Anything you want me to say to them? Any way I can serve my neighbor? Any, any person I should walk across the street to? Any person I should just send the text or make the phone call and just check in with them? Just those kind of practical things where you're asking, God, is there any way I can just bless someone? How do you want to bless me so I can bless them? God, well, what do you want? I'm yours. It's talking with him, making room for him, waiting on him. Number four is give thanks. If you could make one rhythm every day that could change your life, I think it's this one. I think if we would learn to be a thankful people in the way that God says, it is my will for you to give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5, I think we would change. I think we would be a different kind of race as the church, right? This, this generation, the spiritual Israel that we are called to be, God's chosen and holy people, marked by thanksgiving. We're not grumbling people. We're not complaining people. We are thankful people. We are the most thankful people in the world because we have the best news ever and the best ruler ever. Amen? Amen. We have every reason to give thanks in all circumstances. Learning to thank God and not take for granted the things that many of us do. I confess. I can take God for granted. I can take his blessings and the things in my life for granted. And God says, don't. Thank me. Remember me. Because I think what thanking does, it reminds us of God. Does it not? Many times when we're asking for things, we don't think of God. We don't. We think of the thing. But when we thank God, we do think of him. It gets our mind off the thing and gets the mind back to the person who's given those things. Number five is to sing. I would hope that all of us coming in, that Sunday is not the first time you have sung praises to your Savior. That I would invite you that it doesn't have to be. That you can sing to God whenever, wherever you are, with whoever is around. That we are actually told in Ephesians 5 that that is one of the ways we are filled with his spirit. Be filled with the spirit, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so sing. Church, be a singing church in your car, in the shower, to your kids. Sing. Be filled with his spirit. Be filled with his presence, his nearness. These five things, again, it's not just five steps to a better life, but they're five practices that I really think biblically are, are solid, that the God invites us to do. And I'll warn you that we can do these five things and we can just simply go through the motions. You can do that and you can feel really good about yourself. And you're right back to square one. You're the self-reliant person who's just religious going through the motions. But if you want to change it, if you want to make the most of something like that, those five steps, do it relying on God. Do it because you want closeness with God. Do it because you love being under God's rule and under God's arm. And so I want to give us space right now. I'll go ahead and invite the band here as I close. I want us each to ask the question and, and, and ask God himself as you pray this. Where do you find yourself wrestling with God right now? Is there any specific wrestle? It's the one thing that God is telling you, yield, surrender, 
give up and entrust me completely. Don't, don't put your hands on it. Don't try to overplan any longer. Maybe it's something or someone, whether it's a, a spouse, a job, a child, a family member, a dream, or a goal. Again, maybe not bad things, but God's saying it's time to entrust that because you're obsessing in a way that's self-reliant. And if you entrust me with it, it will be in better hands. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's frustration. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's comfort or convenience. And you're looking at your life and you're white-knuckling an idea. You're white-knuckling an emotion. And God is calling you into something bigger and better. Maybe you're not in the wrestle right now and God's inviting you to wrestle. And you need to cling to God. And you need to hold on and wrestle with God. And shout out, God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Here's the first time you need to actually wrestle with God. And God's calling you to surrender your life. Surrender your will, your plans, your rule for something so much better. And I'm not here to promise you that God will give you what you want. I can promise you something better, though. That he'll give you what you need. He'll draw you close. And he'll give you the blessing that you're looking for. Namely, himself. So, at this time, would you go ahead and close your eyes? Just take this time to pray. Take this time to think and ask God, what is the one thing he's asking you to surrender? To wrestle with him. To choose to enter into the wrestling mat with him, maybe for the first time. And the band will invite you once those moments have passed to go ahead and stand and sing with us.